Parenting is hard, and every child in here said amen. (laughs) Excited for this conference and encourage you to, to register and sign up as quickly as you can if you haven't yet. All right, if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We are moving quite deliberately through this opening chapter, aren't we? I think I'm going to say that a couple of more times, turn to Colossians chapter 1, but we have the joy of digging into some weighty passages, and it's okay that they're weighty. It's okay that there's a lot being said about Jesus. There's a lot to Jesus, and it's okay that we wrestle with it. And my hope and my aim in all of this, as we've been digging into Paul's letter to the Colossians, is that our hearts, our heads, our hearts, our lives would, would see and find and believe and rest and trust and cling to Jesus. That we would see Jesus sufficient for it all. We spent the last two weeks in one of the most incredible paragraphs in all of the Bible talking about how overwhelmingly ultimate and supreme Jesus is. And I I don't know what else to do in ministry other than to make much of Him. For in Him, we see the fullness of God pleased to dwell. And in Him, we find a full, final, and forever salvation. So what else can we make much of that is worthy of such a place that is equal to such an ultimate position other than the person and work of Christ fulfilling God's purposes and promises to save a people. It's radical. It's amazing. Does that hit you? Does it hit your heart as radical and amazing? So as you've turned to Colossians 1, we're going to see how that ultimate Jesus that we spent a couple of weeks looking at, he's over all of creation, all of the cosmos is his, he is over the church, all of the redeemed people are his, and he did it all. Here we're going to find just how sufficient he is for us. Let's read Colossians 1, 21 and 20, through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which have been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." God, as we come to your word, we pray and plead that you do a work here now, right now, in us, right here. God, we would pray that you just bring your transforming grace and power to bear upon our lives as we look at how sufficient Jesus is here in your word. So be with us, we pray, to your glory and to our good, we ask in Christ's name, amen. I want you to hear some words from probably my favorite pastor in all of church history, a guy named John Newton. You know John Newton because he's the guy that wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Or you may know John Newton because of his radical uh, uh, salvation story. He was the captain of a vessel that was used for slave trade and it was shipwrecked. And and it was a picture of his shipwrecked soul. And as he cried out for salvation, God saved him, not just his body, but soul. He went on to be a pastor for 40 plus years. 
He didn't write the big theological books that everybody wanted. He didn't get invited to all the conferences as the keynote speaker. He wasn't known for his preaching. He, but he wrote letters, and he wrote letters to people pleading for help. And in every one of his letters, and we have thousands of them, he's driving people to see the all-sufficiency of Jesus. In fact, that's everywhere. Finding Christ all-sufficient. I want to read to you something that he wrote to one dear soul struggling. He said, I trust the great desire of my soul is that Christ may be all in all to me, that my whole dependence, love, and aim may center in him alone. None but Jesus is my motto. Take that for your motto. Wear it in your heart. Keep it in your eye. Have it often in your mouth till you find something better. Now there's a lot to love about that. But it's those last words that strike me. Till you find something better. He dares the reader to try and find something or someone better better than Jesus, because he knows only Jesus is sufficient to be the motto for our lives. How many wasted hours, days, years, decades have we spent trying to find something better? As we consider our passage this morning, may God graciously end all of our searches. May we see only Jesus is all sufficient. And may we say, none but Jesus is my motto. My hope this morning is that we would then come to treasure Christ as all sufficient for all of life. Treasure Christ as all sufficient for all of life. And all of life, I mean that in two ways. I mean that in the the time scope way. All of life. However many days you have or I have left, all of life, In terms of time. But I also mean it in all of life. In terms of its content. Its depth. All of what makes up our lives. That we would find both in time and in content. Jesus is sufficient for you. In all of your days. In all of your ways. Jesus is sufficient. What do I mean by sufficient? Well I mean this. He is enough to meet the need of a situation. Or a proposed end. That Jesus and who he is. And what he has done meets the need of our situation. That is sin. He meets the need of what our sin has done to us in our relationship with God. He meets the need of that. And he meets the proposed goal, the end, the aim of it. And that is restored relationship with God. That we would see he is sufficient for the situation and the finale. Of our lives. And not only that. Not only that. That we would then see. Because those two things are true. He is also sufficient. For all our minutes. All our months. And all our years in between. Do we believe that? That third part. It's harder to believe isn't it? We can get our head a little bit around him. Sufficient for our salvation. The cross. Okay that's a pretty big part of the Christian faith. And we love the idea of heaven, right? Restored things, God reigning, ruling. 
But do we functionally live our day-to-day believing that Jesus is sufficient for our minutes, our days, our weeks, our months? That reminder that you set last week, you could edit that and say Jesus is sufficient for you on Tuesday at 1.37 p.m. Let's wrestle with that together this morning. So let's see. We're going to treasure Christ. And we want to do that. And we want to see these three things from our passage this morning. To treasure Christ is to see Jesus as all-sufficient in our rescue. He is all-sufficient for our rescue in our rescue. He is also all-sufficient for our restoration. In our restoration, Jesus is all-sufficient. He is not lacking anything. He doesn't need any help. He alone is enough to rescue us and restore us. And then thirdly, he is all sufficient in our right nows. Every one of them that are in this room, Jesus is sufficient for our right nows. So let's work through that. First is all sufficient in our rescue. Look back to verse 21 in the very beginning of verse 22. Let's read those again to refresh what Paul is saying. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. There are two things that we need to wrestle with and think about when we see and understand and grasp and cling to Jesus as all-sufficient in our rescue. We, we need to see our need for rescue. We need to see our need for rescue. And we need to see our means of rescue. Our need And our means, if we really want to treasure Christ as all-sufficient in our rescue, we need to see our need for it, and we need to see the means for it. So the need. Look, there are three realities about our need for rescue that Paul says. Three things. Three conditional realities about us in need of rescue. See them there in your passage. We are alienated. We are hostile in mind and we do evil deeds. Why do we need rescued? We're alienated from God. We're hostile in mind and we do evil deeds. So what does that mean? First of all, we're alienated. Alienated from God. It's that part you can kind of get your head around. It's far from God. To be separated from. To no longer fellowship with. To have something broken and distant. To be far off. When we think of a relationship that has been alienated, it's been broken apart. And now the parts are drifting further and further and further away. There's great distance, relational distance, physical distance, intimacy distance. There's just distance. They're not close. They're not together. They're not unified. It is broken, fractured, and filleted. It is torn apart. And so our condition is one of alienation. We are Broken far off from God. Ephesians is like a, like a companion letter to Colossians. They're like sister letters. They, they get at some of the same themes. And they, they, they have a lot that cross over. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way, reminding the Ephesians of what they once were. He said, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant of promise. And then having no hope and without God in the world. To be alienated 
from God, to be far off from God, the Bible says is to have no hope. None. To be without God. That is a desperately dangerous place to be. No matter how comfortable and easy it might feel to not have God through faith in Christ is to be one who wanders through life with no hope. Now, there's another dynamic to what it means to be far off or alienated from God. It's not just some sort of neutral situation or circumstance. This alienation comes with some teeth. It's alienation brought on by us living in opposition to God. It is not a neutral situation. The separation doesn't exist because of accident or circumstances. It exists because we oppose God. We reject Him. We don't want Him. It is a separation brought on by our rejection of God. So it is not just some neutral condition. It is one teeming with opposition. And the next two points that Paul brings out about our need for rescue brings that out in great clarity. First one you see there is hostile in mind. This alienation, this far off from God, broken off from God, was brought on by opposition. And this opposition is evident in the way that we look at life. To be hostile in mind means you look at life, you look at life, you order life, you value life, you shape your life, As if God does not exist. That's the hostility in mind. To to go about living out your life as if the author of life does not exist. The Old Testament gets at it too in this way. Psalm 14, Psalm 53 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. I heard Paul Tripp put it this way. It's not a philosophical atheism. It's a functional atheism. That you are trying to live out your life as if there's no God that you have to think about, worry about, or deal with. It's just you. Your attempt to be the Lord of your life. Not subjecting yourself to anything else. Now, maybe this doesn't strike you as being very hostile. So let me help us in that. All right? I want you to do something right now. I want you to think about someone that you love or care about deeply. Right now, I want you to think of that person. Maybe you're sitting next to that person even. It could be a spouse. It could be a son or a daughter. It could be a parent. It could be a friend. It could be whatever. Just think about that person right now. Got them in, that person in your mind? That person takes you out to coffee or sits down with you in the living room and says to you, I just want you to know something. I'm going to live the rest of my life as if you don't exist. Let, let that hit for a second. Especially you who thought of a spouse. I'm going to live out the rest of my life as if you are not even a memory. That's the sort of hostility that we have in mind when we live in a way that is alienated from God. 
We're saying to the one who is love, who is the author of life, yeah, I'm going to live as if you don't really exist. We cannot underestimate the hostility of looking at life from the perspective that Nietzsche was right and God is dead. And that thinking shows up in the way we live. Third thing that Paul says about the Colossians was that they used to do evil deeds. The separation, this alienation, plus this hostility in mind, this rejection, leads to hostility in action. Evil deeds. Evil deeds are doing anything that runs against who God is, what God has done, and what he wants for us. It is action in our life that rejects God's worth, his works, his ways, his word. It's like this. To live in a world in which there's nothing but alienation, hostility in mind, and evil deeds is to live in the context of a spiritual Mad Max dystopia. A spiritual Mad Max dystopia where we are all running around trying to win over the limited resources that are left and there are warring factions all over the place and there isn't anyone doing any good and we're all just simply trying to survive. It is a context without God and without hope. And the world is a sim- system similar to that which is displayed in our cultural dystopia phenomenon from TV, movies, novels, the like. It's just a battling over borrowed resources. And we are in great and desperate need of rescue. We need to feel that. We need to see that here displayed in scripture. We need to know it in our heads and feel it in our hearts. And look at our lives and think, this was what I once were. Or, this is what I am now. So that we better understand our means of rescue. You who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He, Jesus, has now reconciled you. Your means of rescue from the spiritual Mad Max dystopia that you once lived in is Jesus. He's the one who comes and rescues you. To reconcile means to bring back together that which has been broken and torn down and thrown into disarray and disorder. Jesus comes to bring back together. And he does this through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Paul highlights that through his body, his death, his, the cross. The cross can be a short form of God's purposes through Jesus His incarnation and the cross is the short form capturing why he came. He didn't come by accident or obligation. He came out of love to rescue. And he came not just to have like wonderful little hymns to sing of his birth. But he came because it was a bloody aim that he had to overcome the opposition that we had in our lives. To rescue us from it. He came on a rescue mission. And it was going to cost him his life. And he came anyway. And he came with great joy. So we have to see that our only means of rescue. 
from our alienation, our hostile thinking, and our evil deeds is found in the person and work of Christ. And he rescues us from two things. There are two things that he rescues us from. One we can totally get and understand. The other is very unsettling. First thing that he rescues us from is ourselves. He rescues us from ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. The heart beating in your chest that can get so wandering off onto rabbit rabbit trails and tangents in this world is your worst enemy. We are guilty of our own alienation. We are guilty of our own hostility and thinking. We are guilty of our evil deeds. We are the ones that are apart from Christ, actively rejecting God with our lives, living in opposition to him. We're the ones, not them, not something outside of you. You are your own worst enemy. Maybe no one's ever told you that. I don't say that as a mean person. I say that out of love because I, Sean Carpenter, am Sean Carpenter's greatest threat in this life. Something outside of me. My own dumb heart is my greatest threat. I need rescued from me because I'm an idiot. Do we see ourselves as our own worst enemy in need of rescuing from? I have a good word for you. Romans 5.8 says that God shows you love in this, that while you were actively alienated, hostile in thinking, doing evil deeds, Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to clean up yourself, get your life in order. While you were actively opposing God, living as if he didn't exist, Christ came and lived and died and overcame death for you. That's the nature of God's love for you. That's how he overcomes you for you. That he lives the life that you could not live and dies the death that you deserve and overcomes the enemies you had no hope of overcoming because you didn't even see him as enemies. And he did that for you because he loves you. It's radical. It's amazing. It's grace. That's one of the things that Jesus rescues us from. The other thing is this. This is what's so unsettling. He rescues us from ourselves and he rescues us from God. Remember, our alienation isn't neutral. We are in our alienation opposing God. We've made God the enemy. We've rejected him. We said his worth isn't enough. His ways are not important. His word is whatever, an ancient document that was made up by man. I don't have to worry about God. Well, God will deal with his enemies. And our rejection of God is a flag of defiance in the ground where we say, God, you're our enemy. And God's holiness and glory cannot allow for such rebellion. There will be a day where he will lay waste to all who oppose him. But God, in his infinite grace and mercy and loving kindness, has made a way for his holiness to be upheld and his grace to be offered. And he does it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where both 
justice and mercy are in full measure at the cross. Where holiness and grace are in full measure at the cross. Where God doesn't just sweep something under the rug and and just pretend it never existed. But deals with it fully, finally, and forever. Upholding His holiness and yet bestowing His grace. And that's why Paul makes so much of the reconciliation coming to us by way of death. Christ died so that we could live. He died the death that we deserved. So that we would no longer be enemies, but now brothers and sisters belonging to God. Whoa. This is amazing. And it becomes more amazing to you. The more you realize how awful sin is. How devastatingly stupid living in opposition to God it is. The more you see your need, the more you're overwhelmed by the means of your rescue. And Jesus is all sufficient for your rescue. He's not 85% sufficient, leaving you 15 to, to sort of gather up over the course of your life. He is 100% sufficient for your rescue. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. And he displayed his victory over all that opposed God by overcoming death, sin, and Satan. That is your rescue. And that rescue leads to this most glorious end. Is that not only do we see Jesus sufficient for the rescue, but we can go about treasuring Jesus as we see him sufficient, all sufficient for our restoration. Look at the rest of verse 22. The rest of verse 22 says, He did all of that in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. You have a glorious future who are in Christ. You have a glorious future, you who are in Christ. You have a full, final, forever future. That's what you have in Christ. The aim of Christ's reconciling work is restoration, to be restored, to be rescued and restored. Note the three new descriptions in verse 22. So our old three were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And our new three are that we are now, because of Christ, holy, blameless, above reproach. These words convey a radical transformation that has been fully, finally, and forever established. You are now given a new status that you are now set apart for God, not in opposition, no longer against Him, no longer marked with hostile evil. But now your life, because of Christ, because of Christ, because of Christ, your life is now marked with righteousness, something that you never had. And now you have enough to be with God. Because you have Christ's 
righteousness. A future, full, final, and forever. With a righteousness. A righteousness required. You have it before him. The him in that at the end of verse 22 is referring to God overall. And before him simply means to be with him. So you are now given a status, a situation, this change, in which now you have the righteousness required to be with God because God is holy and perfect and nothing unholy and imperfect can dwell with God. Some of you are familiar with the passage in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah got a little bit of a glimpse of, of the holiness and the glory of God. And he was before God and he fell to his face saying, woe is me because he, pretty, he thought he was about to die. Because he knew he was not supposed to be there. And then Isaiah experienced forgiveness and atonement. And it was a picture of what God would do in the gospel. And so those who are united to Christ through faith. Is given then the righteousness required to be able to dwell with God. That Jesus says you're with him. And where I am there you will be also. Whoa. For everyone who's ever been overlooked, forgotten, dissed, ridiculed, rejected, abandoned, there is something remarkable in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Not only does he come rescue you, but he also gives you his righteousness to count as your own. And not only does he come to rescue you, but he comes to restore it all, as we learned last week. All of it, the whole cosmos, Christ came to restore, to make it right. It's been broken by sin. There's a verse in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, that I can never get past. It says this, no longer... Will there be anything cursed? Speaking about this glorious end in which Christ restores all things, makes all things new, there will no longer be anything cursed. Sat in my office and I thought about that. No longer anything cursed. No longer a hint of sin. Because of Christ, his sufficiency to restore, there will no longer be anyone taking the Lord's name in vain. There will no longer be any lusting after pornography. There will no longer be any anxiety of public places. There will no longer be any pancreatic cancer. There will no longer be any Lyme disease. There will no longer be any divorce. There will no longer be any parents burying children. There will no longer be any Facebook. There will no longer be any side-eye judgmentalism. There will no longer be any passive-aggressive relatives. There will no longer be any identity theft or gender confusion or tornadoes. You can make lists. You can sit down and you can make lists and say, there will no longer be. Because Christ 
is sufficient for all that restoration means. For those of you who are in Christ, your future is just as sure and secure as you view what Christ accomplished on the cross. And when you look to the past and you see the completed work of Christ on the cross, it also gives you a lens into the future and where you see, what you see in the future is just as sure and just as sufficient as it will be. It's incredible that Christ has overcome for us and what that overcome reality will be one great and glorious day. And so I want us to get, I want to give us now an exercise to do. And that's now to move into our third point is that not only, not only do we see Christ as sufficient for our rescue and we see him sufficient for our restoration, but Christ, we can treasure Christ as all sufficient in our right nows. Notice how Paul then immediately takes this and bursts into the right now of the way we live. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here's your exercise. A gospel-shaped exercise where you look at the past plus the future and it equals sufficiency in the right now. So if you ask and say to yourself, if Jesus is all-sufficient for your rescue, and Jesus is all-sufficient, for your restoration. Is he not all sufficient for your right nows? Your right now. How you live right now matters to Jesus. It matters to Jesus. Jesus is alive. He is in heaven. Humanity is in the throne room of God because Jesus took it up with him. And so when you go into glory, there will be a hand that grabs you and pulls you in. A physical hand will grab you and pull you in. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So is he sufficient for you now? He is working now. He is interceding now. He is praying now. He is supplying his spirit now. But do we live as if it matters now? He cares deeply about how you live right now. He died so that you could live. And he's preparing a place that you can live forever. So does he not care about all the days in between? Of course he does. And does he leave it to ourselves? Of course not. He gives us his word and his spirit. And he works powerfully through them both. Do we live now as if that's true? Do we live now as if that's true? Do you think Christ endured the cross So that we could just go about living in whatever manner we please? Do you think Christ endured the cross so that we could live our lives out casual with sin, flippant with grace? Or do you think that God who would be so generous, so gracious, so powerful to rescue us from our sin and to promise a future that would be full, final, and forever, would he not also have good for our lives in the right now. And so we have this call to not look to the left or to the right, but to fix our gaze straight forward at Christ and to live after him, to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel 
Not the hope of your bootstraps, not the hope of this inner strength that you're pulling up out of nowhere that you think you have. No, the hope of what God has already supplied. There's a danger when we get off of that hope. There's a danger in shifting off of treasuring Christ as all sufficient in our right nows. And the danger is other things become more important. And those other things that become more important, they come with their own set of values. And those values begin to shape us. Those hopes begin to shape us. And so other things shape our lives. And then with this vicious cycle, these other things that become more important to us and then shape us, this vicious cycle then leads into we realize they're not as good or as gracious or all sufficient for that role in our lives. And it leaves us empty Angry, anxious, disappointed, despairing. When we make other things our motto, we will find that they will disappoint. Rather, we are to encourage one another to continue in on the faith, continue in with the hope of the gospel. Knowing that what God is doing in our right nows are structurally sound and it's beautifully designed. What God wants to do in your life right now is structurally sound and beautifully designed. That's the the words that Paul's using to describe this stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel is architectural words. He's talking about a a foundation and he's talking about stability. He's talking about dimensions that would be associated with describing a physical building. And so what he's saying is that God has something structurally sound for you to build your life on. But not only is it structurally sound, it's beautifully designed because it's based off of the hope of the gospel. I love... Architecture. I love to go in to a town or a city and see their buildings. Have you ever been struck, just sort of taken aback by an incredible building? Just awed by it? We occasionally watch those shows uh, that travel the world looking for the most amazing whatever, hotels or houses or whatever they might be. And some of them are just Amazing. Who, who dreamed up of this? And then like could actually make it. It's amazing. And you want to go there and you want to see them. You want to walk in and look up and just be awed by the, by, the, by the grandeur of it. And then notice like how incredibly like solid and amazing it is. That's what God is wanting to do in your life right now. Something that can weather the storms of life and something that is beautiful even on the darkest of days. That's what God wants to do in your life now. He wants to conform you, shape you, mold you to the image of the one who has rescued you. Structurally sound, beautifully designed. Our lives are to be that structurally sound on the foundation of our faith, trusting in God's word, digging deeply into its riches, seeing our lives, our heads, our hearts, our lives transformed and reshaped 
And in so doing, it's not just functional, it's beautiful. It is based off of the gospel and its hope and its joy and its wonder. And so our lives can be treasuring Christ as all-sufficient in the right now in the way that we live. And maybe that brings some conviction to us, and that's okay. Maybe we are honest and we look at ourselves and we think, oh, uh, I haven't really... I haven't really done the laundry in here. It's sort of piled up. And on the little bit of laundry that I've done, I really haven't put away. And you kind of look around and you see where all the dust has settled. And all the little minor repairs that need to happen. And you feel overwhelmed by it because you lived maybe years or decades even just sort of like eking through this church scene. You might be thinking to yourself, I'm too far off. I'm so discouraged right now, actually, Sean. I want to say to you that the depth and magnitude of God's love for you is displayed in the cross of Christ. And that when you look at the cross and you see what Christ endured to rescue you, and when you take in the, the nature of what Christ's completed work will lead to, glory with God for all eternity, Please allow those two significant truths to speak to your right nows to say that God's still the same. He hasn't changed. And he's offering to you right now in the work of Christ in this gospel the means of grace necessary for your life to be structurally sound and beautifully designed right now. Take up your Bible. Open up your heart. Plead with your Lord. Be with his people. Help others come to see how great and glorious he is. And little by little, your life will be structurally sound and beautifully designed. None but Jesus is my motto. Take that for your motto. Wear it in your heart. Keep it in your eye. Have it often in your mouth till you find something better. Only Christ is worth treasuring because only Christ is all sufficient. God, we pray that we would indeed know that in our hearts, our heads, in our very lives today. That we would dig deeply into knowing all that you've done for us in the person and work of Christ that it would make a profound change in how we see our world, how we see who you are, how we see ourselves. Would it help us then to live with hope now? Because that's what you want for us, to be solidly, firmly fixed on the person and work of Christ, marked and beautified with hope in the right now. So God, may we live happy, humble, hopeful, and ever-increasing holy lives to your glory and to the good of your people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.